traveling is a big, big part of who I am, but also on what I do. Welcome on board this ESCP flight to Knowledge. Our flight time today would be less than 30 minutes. The outside's temperature is abnormally high. A faculty member will be with you shortly to help you understand what impact their research can have on business and society. If you hear brace, brace, please pay extra attention as only science can alter our collision course. For this episode of BRACE, the podcast about impactful research by ESCP, we talk to Elisa Sido, who is an associate professor of entrepreneurship and innovation on the Turin campus. Her research interests lie in entrepreneurship with a specific emphasis on the African context. She also founded a startup that provides a platform to connect women entrepreneurs from developing countries with international experts to create a shared learning experience. Alyssa, thank you for agreeing to do this. I first ask you a very simple question. Who is Alyssa? I really uh, like this question and uh, I'm always a little bit laughing because uh, the answer might always change a little bit because who is Alyssa is of course an evolving, let's say, uh, development. And um, there are always new things that I would like to do. So this is always changing. But the current status quo about who is Alisa is a very curious person passionate about uh, creating impact by meeting people, new people, especially entrepreneurs and changing in a way their life. And I do that with Nampeka as an entrepreneur, but of course also as my role as a professor and part of ESCP because I have the opportunity and also the pleasure, let's say, to meet a lot of different individuals, very international. And with meeting them and with the fact of maybe giving and sharing them something about my experience, my expertise in entrepreneurship, where I have, or I am, I'm tending to always talk in we form, even if it's about me. <laughs> so I have an impact, uh, let's say, on their life in the way that through the meeting, through the exchange, something has changed in the way people and individuals after that um, are kind of following their path. And that's basically me. That's in a nutshell what I really, really love to do and what I like to do. And that's the reason why I have a lot of different activities around that but it's always connected to this let's say my purpose on what is driving me each day to kind of say let's okay let's get it done when and how did you develop an interest in impact entrepreneurship okay so back then um let's say my interest started even without having an idea about what does impact entrepreneurship mean actually so the interest actually started when I was back in my degree of a master as a master student because I really opened up to explore the different topics around entrepreneurship, but always with the connection to sustainability and especially also natural products that are connected to different cultures. 
because due to, let's say, my experience in the master, I started and continued to travel a lot. <laughs> One fact, of course, is also the, um, let's say, reason and situation that I moved from Germany to Italy and not only Italy, but then I went to Fortaleza, Brazil. I went for the first time to Africa. I went to Argentina. So with all that, I really had this, let's say, um, moment in which I felt like, okay, I love entrepreneurship. I love innovation, but always with the idea to say like, we want to use that. We want to build up new businesses in order to solve problems that are locally in a specific context and that are usually connected to bigger issues such as poverty, local development, sustainable development. And so for me, it was always this fact of saying like, how can we use our business perspective, meaning making money, <laughs> creating revenues, creating a value and selling that value but always with the connection, yes, we do that, but in an area where we have additional issues, such as, let's say, um, low employment rates, et cetera, where we, with our entrepreneurial thrive, we can help not only personally me as a founder, but of course, also, let's say, a community, people at the larger level. And that was something that has already started back then when I started and I did my master degree okay. without having, let's say this name of, wow, that's impact entrepreneurship in mind. Is that where you stopped cigarettes? I stopped basically being employed at British American Tobacco more for the reason because I really didn't feel and still do not feel <laughs> that my passion, interest, and even let's say personal traits are made to put me into a corporate context in terms of um, something such as British American tobacco, because I feel like I cannot really exploit all the ideas or the initiatives or the passion that I have because due to constraints of budgeting, strategy, time, etc. And so that's why I had, first of all, the reason of leaving British American Tobacco was that I wanted to have more international uh, exposure, developing myself, exploring my real passions and where I would like to put my time to and where I would like to see my contribution at a larger level. Where does your fascination with entrepreneurship in Africa, particularly among women, originate? Among women, particularly, has let's say happened during my first time that I've been in Kenya and more precisely I have spent three months in Nairobi and honestly I had no idea what I could expect <laughs> in terms of what happens in the silicon savannah that is Nairobi. Um, when I went there for the first time I was in general positively shocked by the strong interest, courage, and entrepreneurial passion to get things done, to build up the businesses despite a lot of obstacles that they face. And this is something that is not, let's say, gender related. That is a general feeling that you can immediately feel when you start talking to local entrepreneurs that are, for instance, in Nairobi, in the country of Kenya. However, then I also had the great pleasure to meet a lot of women and uh, we became good friends up to now with some of them. One example is Mugeti, which is a very, very close friends, a friend of mine. And 
maybe also due to the fact that I'm also a woman. So of course, in a way I can see myself, of course, also in their role and we can connect also through that. But I was very fascinated by the, it's really kind of the strength and the level of resilience that those women have because they really face a lot of additional barriers and severe obstacles that I honestly, because I grew up in Germany, um, I had never ever imagined that those obstacles could exist. And in order to make it a little bit more, let's say easier to grasp what I mean, one example is that has really kind of always remembered me uh, when I think about those issues is the concept around wearing your natural hair. So for me, honestly, I've never thought about it. I never really thought about how should I wear what if I want to work in a specific context, such as let's take the example of British American tobacco, never thought about it. Whereas while talking with this friend Mugeti, for instance, she has told me about how much they are kind of forced to wear their hair very similar to what we have in Europe. So straight hair, which is completely the opposite of the natural hair. It costs them a lot of time. They need to use chemical products that are not good for them. And they need to kind of, in terms of the idea, the message that you send to those women and not only women, but of course also teenagers is, you as a natural person, as this very indigenous, let's say, um, attributes that you have, you're not good enough to enter the best boarding schools. You're not good enough to enter the best universities. And later on, you're not good enough if you want to enter top corporate companies and consulting firms. In those contexts, it's always better seen if you wear this very westernized, let's say, approach of your hairs. And this has a very strong psychological barrier. But while talking to this friends, for instance, she has suffered. But instead of saying like, okay, I complain, I suffer, and I kind of accept this as my destiny. It's the opposite of what those women do. They say, I don't accept this. I turn it into an opportunity. And I want to do something to work against that by building up my business, by, for instance, offering and fighting for this awareness to wear the hair natural and use natural products for the hair that are locally sourced, locally produced, and actually good for the type of hair that those women have. And for me, that was mind-blowing. It was really fascinating. And it has encouraged me also to see myself also as an entrepreneur and to say like, yes, I also can do it. And it has opened my eyes on a lot of things. And that is why I continued this area around women and female entrepreneurship in the context of Africa, because what I explained is only one example, but there are a lot of different cases where we always have a very similar pattern. And that is why I'm really passionate about exploring this area. You also wrote an article about the constraints Maasai tribeswomen encounter and the solutions they found through frugal innovation. Can you elaborate on this? So in the case of, for instance, the Maasai women, um, which is a tribe, so it means like we are not talking about an urban area such as the city as Nairobi, but usually we are going into the rural areas. If that happens, we even have additional, let's say, cultural elements and artifacts that we are still having from, from the past. 
And in the case of the Maasai women, one issue that is kind of, um, let's say, connecting to a lot of different cases is the fact about ownership. And in that case, most of the women, Maasai women, they do not have from social norms, right? They do not have the right to own, for instance, cows. However, what they can do is they can work with the cows that are owned by the Maasai men. And what and how they use the cows, the product that they get out of it. So in that case, it was around yogurt and milk. That is something they can own and sell and use in order to build up something that makes them a little bit more independent. But it's always connected to this, let's say, contrast that in the end, they do not own the cow. Or in other cases, when it's about coffee farming, avocados, it's always about they don't own the land. And even though that in Kenya, for instance, since 2010, they have a new constitution in which women do have equal rights. Women do have the ability to actually own land. But the issue is, in most of the cases, especially in rural areas, it's not applied. So the legal framework, the official framework, it's not applied because it's contrast to what the culture actually, let's say, uh, foresees. And that's why it's very interesting to see also in that way how women, instead of saying like, okay, that's my destiny, I cannot do anything, I'm not owning the cow, they don't accept that. They find a way how to kind of cope with it and come kind of overcome those challenges in order to still build up something and that something is a business activity. And usually the money is not because they're selfish and they want to keep it for themselves in order to buy a new dress. It's because they want to support their families, their children. They want to give them the opportunity to go to school, which is usually paid by them because the public school system is really difficult. So it's very interesting to see those cases. And that is why also the area around impact is interesting because most of the times those women, especially also Maasai women, they want to build up business activities, but not with the main idea to say, like, I want to become a great entrepreneur. They want to help their family, their kinship ties, and to ensure a better future. Mm -hmm. The solution they came up with is through milk chama. Can you explain what a chama is? So in the context of Kenya, the concept of Chama is something that is deeply embedded in the local culture. It's very interesting to look at because the main idea is to believe that there is a strength and a great value in a community so that putting different individuals together can always create a bigger value than if some individual is working alone, which again, is something like, I find it very fascinating. I'm German, growing up in Germany, we are a very individualistic country. Um, so the Chama basically is an informal group in which different individuals group them together in order to help each other, share resources and create a bigger value together. Um, very practical examples, for instance, are used in order to get access to a bank account. Still, having a bank account is something quite expensive, but also challenging. Again, if we think about the rural areas, because for instance, Maasai women, even if they do have maybe the financial resources to open up a bank account, 
it is not that easy because you need to find a bank, you need to find the time to move to the transport is not easy and so on. So in most of the cases, there are usually uh, five people coming together in order, for instance, to say like, okay, let's share, let's create a charmer together and together we can open a bank account instead of doing it alone. Um, so this is one example, but there are a lot of different ones. It's something that is also kind of accepted at a legal level. That's why, for instance, they can actually register as a charmer and they can open up a bank account together. And the Maasai women use this charmer again to work together because if, for instance, one Maasai woman have maybe two cows, it doesn't really maybe make sense to have kind of a milk business and selling. Mm. However, if we have more women coming together, things are changing because, again, summing up all the different uh, individuals and what they have, what they can use, working together, they can create synergies and that actually allows them and enables them to start this business activity. So the charm is a very strong concept, especially when there is a weak support from governmental and former institution side. Because in that way, instead of having a support from some institutions to build up your business, you have others around you from your community that can help. You use Chema in your company. Can you explain how? So the main idea then for Nampelka and the reason why we decided let's use that concept of charmers also for our business model is the fact that so far the cases and examples we can see for instance in Kenya is reduced and limited to the fact that the individuals that connect and build up a charmer together are the ones that know each other and are locally very close to each other. That is great, but we thought with all the different digital channels, it could be an added value to create charmers in which you can connect different individuals that are not only locally very close to them, but the opposite that are coming from a completely different context, having very different competences and experiences, but basically on that diversity, this connection can be enriching. And that was kind of the starting point why we said we would like to use the charmers also for the idea of Nampelka, because we build up those charmers that are putting together and connecting, um, let's say, relationships, creating those relationships between individuals from the context of Africa with the more westernized words, such as some European countries. You mentioned your company, Nampelka. Where does the name come from? Nampeka means, so um, there is the original starting point of Nampeka is connected to the indigenous language of Mapuche, which is a was used and spoken in the south of Chile and Argentina. And um, the original word is Nampeka Fe, so there is still kind of an F and an E. But while we were using it, we felt like, oh my God, it's too close to coffee. So we said, let's get rid of it. But the meaning of the word is traveler. And for us, it was very important in finding a name of this idea to have a 
meaning that is connected to the idea of exploration, different cultures, curiosity, openness, and always in a move, always into like action dynamic. And so we really wanted to have something around this traveler. And that is why we decided, okay, let's go for Nampelka. And the funny thing is that I cannot really pronounce it right, but in Swahili, it means Nampelkele, which is very similar, means come along, which again, it's something very inviting to say, like, come along, join me in my journey, in my travel. And that is basically the core, kind of a very big value for what we do in Nampelka. How has Nampelka evolved over time? The business model of Nampelka has changed a lot. And in a way, it's connected also to the fact that me, Alisa, I have changed a lot <laughs> in the way that I have, lucky me, uh, added a lot of different experiences. And the starting point, the purpose and my personal per uh, passion for Nampelka was in the idea of saying we should try to provide opportunity and international exposure or visibility to entrepreneurs that are coming from a less developed area. And in the first place, we thought about this by doing a marketplace. So a simple, let's say, online shop in which we sell different products that we as Nampeka select and work with the local small producers that otherwise wouldn't have the chance to enter the European market. For example, we started to sell biodynamic Malbec from Argentina, which is a tiny winery that has not the chance to really get into the international and European market. Another one was the coffee from Cameroon. It was direct imported from the local farmer. And again, we wanted to provide the opportunity to have more sales in order to help them, give them more stability in their business development. However, experience is doing an online shop. It's one way of doing business. But connecting to who I am as Alisa before as a question, it's about there should be an I'm getting curious and very passionate when there is an impact on the people. They change, they change the way how they think, how they behave, how they want to build up their business. And so this personal touch and even educational learning moment has missed completely in this business model of saying like, we just have a marketplace, we sell online, we provide them revenues, that's all. And so that's why by meeting also a lot of different women in Africa, seeing that they are already doing a lot. They just don't have enough time. They don't have enough managerial competences. They don't get to the next stage. They keep the stage of inform activities. They keep the stage of, I do a little bit of the things on my own by hand, but they're not able to kind of turn it into an SME, for instance. And so adding all of that together, in the end, we still want to support local producers from less developed areas. But by now, we want to do that by, first of all, helping them to be connected to an international community that has competences that they need in order to scale up their business. And maybe in the future, we are turning again also to a marketplace as an add-on. But for now, 
we can scale faster if we turn it into this classic business model of a matchmaking platform in which it's about creating matches for a shared learning experience between female entrepreneurs from developing markets, Africa, and European international managers. Because the entrepreneurs, the women, they have entrepreneurial experience and passion, but they have a lack on managerial experience. The managers, they have a lot of managerial experience, but most of the times what we know, they don't have this entrepreneurial attitude. So they actually have interesting complementary resources. And that is why this match becomes, becomes interesting. And that is why we're turning it into a matchmaking platform. Very interesting. You recently co-authored a research paper about uh, social entrepreneurs and impact drift. Would you care to explain what impact drift is and what the findings are? When we look at literature and at what we teach as professors and lecturers is usually um, in the context of social entrepreneurship, it is connected to mission drift. That is something that is well established. And mission drift, just to kind of define it in order to better highlight the difference is connected to the fact that social entrepreneurs have a strong purpose and mission towards, we want to create a social value that can be reducing poverty, increasing education, giving access to education for someone who at this stage does not have it. It's about inclusion in a lot of cases. However, once starting to build up a business, Part of the game is that you get investors on board and investors and other maybe stakeholders might after a while kind of push you towards like, we also have our economic objectives that we want to achieve. And by focusing more and more and higher pressure on the economic values and objectives, you might have gradually drift away from the mission, which is connected to the social value. And you're drifting towards focusing more or having a bigger, let's say, preference on the economic objective part. That is mission drift, which is well established. Now, the concept of impact drift comes into play where it's not only about creating a social value, because if we look at the areas of Africa or other developing economies, the idea of creating a social value is very strong if we say social value is connected to uh, increasing, uh, let's say, the inclusion of um, education, employment. That is something that has a big, big impact and it's important. We would assume from our, let's say, Western perspective that if you have such a strong focus on your community and the social values, such as your employees, because we would love to give them a job and to help them, to support them to grow, you would usually tend to say, you need to listen to them. You need to really kind of talk to them, include them, be very supportive and so on. That is something, if you would do that in the field of emerging markets, you would fail tomorrow because they don't show up 
they are not coming to work, they don't do their job, they're asking for money in advance because they need to pay the school fees or someone needs of their family, of their kinship, extended kinship needs to go to a hospital. If you really do that, to be that social and to be that supportive, for instance, to the stakeholders such as employees, you would fail. So in that case, let's say that's a very um, simplified example, but we have seen that a lot of times and that was kind of the origin of our study. And so we identified that there's actually another issue that they have in mind in terms of drifting, because if they really want to create that impact, meaning that they want, for instance, to their employees to provide them a safe job for the future, maybe even with the idea of having a personal development plan to increase their salary, then they need to be kind of the opposite of what we would assume how a social entrepreneur should behave if we have our Western perspective. And from the theory, we always use our Western perspective because that is where most of our studies are coming from. So what we we have seen is we need to add this concept of impact drift because entrepreneurs in emerging markets, they really need to focus on what is my impact. And if I want to achieve that impact, for instance, connected to the, let's say, quality of the employees, that means they cannot listen to them. That means they need to be very harsh and they need to really work against them in a way in order to keep their impact because otherwise, if they would tend to be too social, too supportive, they would fail to create and drift away from creating an impact because they wouldn't have any business anymore. Hmm. And that is, in a nutshell, impact drift. Okay. Do you have other examples? So one of the biggest examples is um, about employees, but it's not only about employees. It's basically you can extend it to different groups of stakeholders. Um, it's very similar to if you want to work with different suppliers. And again, it's a similar pattern that if you want to build up a strong and strategic partnership with one of the suppliers where you need maybe some ingredients for in order to produce those natural beauty products, as in the case of Mugeti, you cannot be that open and supportive and always accept any request of them in order to keep the relationship positive. Because if you would do you would risk that things happen such as they're asking you to pay in advance, products are then not delivered, the quality is not good enough, all of a sudden the quality of your ingredients, such as maybe for the chia butter, uh, is very low uh, because they started to feel like, oh, okay, that's an easy client, they already gave me the money, we are working since three years, it's all good, whatever I sent them, in order to make more money on their own. So... It's always kind of uh, this pattern that you can see in different groups of stakeholders where the biggest ones usually for entrepreneurs at the beginning is about suppliers that they need for their business model and the employees. And another one is in general the family, even if it's not part of the employees. Because if you start to have success, it's very common that they will ask for, for money, for school fees, uh, hospital fees, or whatever in the extended kinships. 
You mentioned traveling a few times. Is that the thing that had the most impact on your life and career? Traveling is a big, big part of who I am, but also on what I do. Because without the experience, impressions, and people that I met through my different travels, I think I wouldn't be the Alisa that I'm now as a person. But of course, also, I wouldn't do the different activities that I'm doing at this moment. It was not always easy because to be very clear, what I mean with traveling, it's not the traveling, just having a checklist of um, monuments that I would like to see in a different place. It's not about the different dishes that I would like to try. It is different because when I mean traveling, it's about talking and meeting and kind of getting into the local culture. And that is why for me, it's also important to have the time for doing it. Because usually if you travel with friends just for a couple of days or with your family, um, it's relaxing. It's a nice impression, but it's different from what I mean with my traveling. I'm Considering my travel time when I was, for instance, a volunteer in Fortaleza in Brazil, it was about two months and definitely it was not easy <laughs> because it's a very dangerous city. And I have uh, taught um, young kids some English and I didn't speak Portuguese, so I needed to be creative, but it was impressive. It was not easy. I don't know how many times I wanted to just go back home, but I didn't. So that was a travel experience. Another one is Argentina. Again, it was about two months. Uh, the first times that I was in the context of Africa, Kenya, it was three months. This is where you can really talk to different people, see a lot of things and get a feeling of what is happening and being open. And most of the times it's also helpful if you're, travel you're traveling alone because otherwise it's again also very difficult to kind of say like, okay, Let's go with the flow. <laughs> it's easier if you travel for work or on your own because then you have kind of this exploration mode on. Is that why you decided to join ESCP? Because it has campuses in different countries? It's definitely a big, let's say, plus on ESCP that we do have this cross-campus and very international spirit because it's kind of, let's say, <laughs> I don't want to say it's kind of a, a dark side effect of whenever you have started to really have kind of this international exposure. And of course, that means that also your friends and family is not in one city and in one country, <laughs> which mm. is lovely. And it's something that is kind of, let's say, the consequent out of the traveling and the experiences that I've done in the last, let's say, 10 years. But of course, it also means that you are in a way all, all over the place. And then, of course, it's very nice to see that also ESCP is kind of all over the place. Because if I want to travel to Paris to meet some friends, it's easy for me to kind of pass by your campus to meet you, to see you. And you feel home again because ESCP, it doesn't matter on which campus you are, it's always has this kind of identity and culture of you are now in the world of ESCP. So yes, it's definitely um, a very interesting factor and the reason why I feel like, yeah, that's a nice place to be. Is there anything else that had an impact on the person you are or the work you do? A 
big impact because I've not yet mentioned it is also the fact that after having done all my life in Germany, <laughs> so having of course this very being on time, very precise, <laughs> ambitious in terms of the very stereotype characteristics and attributes of Germany as a country and the German culture. I've spent the last 10 years in Italy and it has shaped a lot of who I am now. And maybe we need to ask friends and family in order to have the confirmation. But my personal feeling is that I feel better now and it's more pleasant also to work with me because there are a few things that of course in a way I have incorporated into my own way of doing that is coming from the Italian way of doing things and not everything is bella vita in Italy but of course there are a few things about just sometimes calming down, relaxing, enjoying things, um, seeing the perf not perfection in terms of doing a lot of things, but maybe focusing on something and being very creative and taking your time on doing it. So there are a lot of different elements where I feel like, okay, I've changed a lot also due to the, let's say, Italian exposure in the last 10 years. And I really like it. On behalf of ESCP, thank you for choosing us for this journey towards knowledge.